Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today my friend Grant Skeldon. Grant is a um, a leader among the next generation. Uh, he started the Initiative Network when he was 23 years old with the goal of developing young leaders into Christ-loving, city-changing, church-investing, disciple <laughs> making local missionaries. Grant, that's a mouthful, but that really does capture your heart. And uh, I have, just in the short time I've known Grant, I've learned a lot, so much about uh, Gen Z. Uh, Gen Z, those who have been, were born after the year 2000-ish. And Grant is 30 years old, so he's a millennial. So we talk a lot about the difference between millennials and Gen Z. And um, just, I, I learned a lot in this episode. And every time I hang out with Grant, uh, I just learn a ton about how to uh, not just reach, but as he says, disciple the next generation of Christian leaders. Grant is the author of The Passion Generation. Um, oh, what's the subtitle on this? The Seemingly Reckless, def- Definitely Disruptive, But Far From Hopeless Millennials by Grant Skeldon, published by Zondervan. And so uh, Z- uh, Grant uh, currently is the next-gen uh, leader uh, of Q Ideas. A lot of you know about Q Ideas. Um, in fact, when this podcast comes out, I will either be at or getting ready to leave for the Q uh, conference out in Nashville. Uh, no, it is not QAnon. Okay, people, um, it is uh, Q Ideas, the conference, the, the cultural uh, culture summit. I think it's called in Nashville, uh, April twenty second and twenty third. So anyway, if you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw and support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to premium content, including um, once a month uh, podcasts that I record answering all of the questions sent in from my Patreon supporters, once a month blogs that I write for my Patreon supporters. So join the Patreon community, or sorry, join the theology in the raw community at patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. Okay, without further ado, let's get to know the one and only Grant Skeldon. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with my friend Grant Skeldon. Grant, thanks so much for being on the show for the first time. Yeah, man. Thank you for having us. We're wearing the same thing, bro. (laughs) (laughs) You got the memo. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for those who are listening only, uh, we are. Um, this is also a video. We do this video and audio, so there is a YouTube version of this conversation. But um, Grant, uh, why don't you give us a little introduction to who you are for people that don't know your name, and then I really want to dive into this. I mean, just a really pertinent topic of understanding and ministering to, and coming alongside and learning from Gen Gen Z, which I know that's the world you've been uh, living in for a while. Uh, but who who are you, Grant? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my name is Grant Skeldon. Uh, I am, you know, the Skeldon name is a South African name, actually. So my dad's South African. Uh, my mom is the youngest of 14 in this massive Mexican family. And so I'm half South African, half Mexican dude nice. from Dallas. Um, I've been in Dallas, honestly, my whole life until... Four months ago, uh, in the midst of COVID, some things started shaking up, and uh, I started feeling some clarity from God on stuff to where I uh, kind of got to know you through this transition even. is About four or five months ago, I got married. I got um, I moved to Nashville, and I moved to Nashville because I 
just recently joined Q Ideas with Gabe and Rebecca Lyons. Uh, I have a history of speaking on behalf of younger generations, especially more so the millennial generation, but mostly to older generations to help them either, whether it's pastors that are just trying to reach the next generation, parents that are trying to raise the next generation, or sometimes a lot of times business leaders that are trying to better retain the next generation, uh, since so many millennials were job hopping. Uh, and then I wrote a book with Zondervan called The Passion Generation. Uh, the keynotes version is it's kind of a Trojan horse book that acts like it's a book to help you better reach the next generation. But it's really just a book about how you should disciple the next generation and how to practically do that. It's a very practical book on discipling the next generation where instead of meeting with them one on one once a month or once a week, it's more about including them in your life. Mm -hmm. um, it's a I say it's a lot less about mentoring them and saying, hey, come and meet with me, but it's more about discipleship hmm. where you say, hey, come and follow me and join my world. Uh, so that was a book I wrote uh, two years ago. And then, um, yeah, and then I, a big thing I'm probably known for among young leaders, but it's more private on the on the larger scale, is I've stumbled into and found that, that I have like a gifting and even I would say a calling to try to the best of my ability to unite, you know, I would even say find first, to find unite and accelerate some of the most diverse and dynamic young Christian leaders across the country uh, to reach probably the most lost generation we've ever seen. And so I do a lot of retreats um, and sometimes international trips where I take uh, very high caliber young Christian leaders who are, let's say, professional athletes, speakers, authors, online influencers, musicians, worship leaders, pastors, itinerant speakers. Just get, if you're a young Christian, in your 20s or maybe early 30s and have a national platform, uh, very intentional to, to kind of recruit this group into a growing family of mm -hmm. young Christian leaders, because I just think it's going to be uh, crucial that the next generation Christian leaders are united. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What, what were you doing in Dallas before joining Q Ideas? I mean, that's that, those retreats and speaking oh, okay. a lot were, were what I've been doing about seven years now. Were, were you working? Was it part of a, a bigger organization or you do it just more as like, yeah. independently? Yeah, or? the group was called Initiative Network. Okay. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm curious. This is, I wasn't planning on asking this, but I, I need to know because people keep asking me this. Has, has Q had to rebrand itself? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, a year ago think, nobody knew what QAnon was, but now it's like everywhere, and I, yeah. I can't even wear my. I hate it. You guys gave me a, this a sweet looking hat with a Q on it, and I, I can't <laughs> wear it anywhere because everybody's gonna think I'm QAnon. Um, yeah, I know it stinks for. I mean, Preston, think about. Okay, so I, I got married in November and then joined the staff officially after getting married, but I only got to finally move to Nashville around January. Uh, the first week of January. So I moved to Nashville. It was my first week working for Q Ideas. And honestly, uh, some pe older people, when I was telling them that I was moving to Nashville to work for Q, they some of them were saying stuff, oh, so your your true colors are finally coming out, huh? And I'm like, what does that mean? It's in text form. And so I'm like, uh, haha, yeah, I guess so. And I, I'm like, <laughs> they start saying stuff about conservative and ultra conservative. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't get it. Like, I don't feel like Q's known that, like, as a strong ultra conservative. I don't get it. Um, yeah. But I kept getting those jokes. And once I... Uh, started looking into it more. I was like, why did people keep saying this? And they told me, because I don't think young people really at that point yet knew too much about Q yeah. Anon. It was mostly from the older people that got it. However, my first week was January. And then whenever the uh, the Capitol uh, event happened, that's when I feel like really even okay. young people knew. 
especially what Q was. Because that dude with like the horns uh, and that yeah. weird outfit and like barbarian kind of look, he actually held a sign that said, Q sent me. That was the sign that he held. If you Google him, <laughs> yeah. look up Q sent me and that guy. And I was just like, oh my goodness, it's terrible. So uh, it stinks because, yeah, because the organization has been around for um, for 18 years. But yeah, we, we definitely usually say Q ideas now more than we used to just say Q because uh, that's the website. A lot of times that's some of the branding. But yeah. I do think we are heavily considering what does uh, rebranding look like really? so we don't have to uh, just say who or not. We get to just continue to be like who we are. Uh, but I think we also we're thinking about potentially announcing that here at the at the conference. But we want to put a little more time and not just be yeah. very knee jerk reaction responsive to to all of it. It is. I mean, it's part part of me is like, oh, that kind of sucks. I get it. Another part's like, oh, come on, like whatever. So somebody else used the letter of the alphabet and it's an entirely different organization. Like whatever. But then you do have to put up with. Or do, do you guys get? emails or this or that are people assuming you're part of QAnon or is it really not that big of a yeah. deal? Yeah, I mean, some people, some people. And and um, I think bigger than that is uh, we, I think we did a survey and found that uh, a good, uh, a little bit less than half of the people that would think about sharing our content have considered, they said they consider, would this get misconstrued as QAnon instead of Q ideas? Because the, the videos and the content we have online all has a little Q at the bottom and so... Uh, that's probably more problematic that they have to even consider, should I share this or will it get, uh, yeah, just, what oh, it, I just people don't perceive care. This. I think people, I think people are way overly self-censoring these days. Like I, yeah, I, but I get, I get, it. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I don't walk around in public with the hat on just because I don't want, it's like, it's just more like, I just don't have time for anybody to say something or whatever or or i mean i live in idaho so i don't want people to kind of give me like a high five you know <laughs> yeah yeah <I> but <laughs> but i don't know like i would have zero problem sharing something even if loads of people were like i can't believe you're 4q i'm like dude use your brain for half a second and just realize that, that maybe i'm the letter is used to identify another organization like come on um anyway yeah. that's not why you're here grant you're you're here because i um, we were at a, a private gathering uh, in January, shortly after you moved to Nashville, and um, we had a panel of uh, young Gen Z leaders, um, and I was blown away. I was really blown away at their heart, uh, their focus, the questions they're asking, their passions, and um, yeah, the, one of the one of the things that, and I, this is not a word for word thing, but one of them said, one of the people on the panel, I think tw- tw- 19, 20 year old. Um, yeah. said something like, you know, yeah, you, you millennials out there, you know, you try to make Jesus really cool and sexy and attractive. We don't care about that. We want a meaningful Jesus. We want the authentic Jesus. We want a Jesus who's not afraid to tell us, Hey, you should do this and shouldn't do that. We want a Jesus who cares about holiness. You know, I was like blown away, you know, but then yeah. I thought anecdotally, I'm like, yeah, I could, I'm raising four Gen Z kids and they're, they're kind of, they're just, you try to make Jesus cool. They sniff that out and they actually can't stand it, you know? Um, yeah. So I'm like, ah, that kind of resonates with even my little world here. But, um, can you give us a, yeah, maybe even start there, but help, help us understand. I mean, you've done such extensive work with a broad range of Gen Z leaders and Gen Z people. And, um, what's how, how help us understand this generation as, as older Christian leaders, how can we, um, yeah, have a, a more accurate perspective on what Gen Z is thinking through right now. Yeah, I mean, kind of commenting on that, I remember, basically, I think that when I look at the Xers, um, 
because just, I mean, a lot often whenever you talk about generations, people are going to kind of, <clears throat> sorry, I want to know what ages are we talking about? So millennials would be kind of generally around 1980, born between 1980 to 2000. And then uh, Gen Z would be born after that. So Gen Z is usually about 23 to 25 or younger. Um, and then Xers would be uh, kind of like millennials, of course, parents age. Uh, and when I, I think when millennials saw church, um, they saw that uh, Xers had kind of shifted and built a church. Uh, or actually, even let's go to um, let's go to just even Boomer's church. I mean, Boomers got to live in maybe the last Christian generation, where it's like everyone kind of just assumed Christianity, kind of generally went to church, um, and it wasn't as I guess postmodern, if you will. And I just feel like um, I, I grew up in Dallas, and I remember asking. Uh, an old lady in Dallas once, I was like, you know, surely not everybody was a Christian. I'm sure everybody was churched here in Dallas because Dallas is such a church culture. Mm -hmm. But I was like, what about, there must've been people that just didn't really buy in and didn't really have a true faith. Um, that didn't go to church. And I was like, what did those people do? Like, would they hang out on Sundays or, and just what did they do on Sundays instead? And, and she said, you know, I knew I had friends definitely that didn't go to church when I was a, a younger. However, they would never hang out outside of, uh, their house on a Sunday because you never would want to be seen not in church on Sunday. <laughs> and I was like, man, that's like a, the, the culture of church are really bled into the community, at least of Dallas, again, a very church city. Yeah. Um, and so all I have to say is I feel like church was this sacred event, um, but could sometimes become like a somewhat of a stodgy, judgmental place as well. And that burned a lot of people and that hurt some people that there, we started seeing de-churched and uh, some unchurched people. Uh, that I, when I think like the Bill Hybels and the Rick Warrens and the Andy Stanleys, uh, the extra generation kind of created, or these would be like older extra guys, built um, church. They kind of, I think every generation personally responds the pendulum to the other side. And there's some really great things that come out of that, but there's also some dark sides or shadows to that, if you will. And so to my opinion, they kind of created, they went away from like the sacred event and they kind of say, how do we make this an awesome event? Or, or at least the very minimum, I feel like they try to make church more comfortable. Like mm -hmm. how do we make Jesus or church more comfortable for those who have been uh, hurt by church have, or don't see church and think of it as something they could connect with or relate with, but they actually come and like, they, they have, they feel welcome. They, they love the experience. They have something for their kids. Um, I, I really feel like family church, especially kind of came out of that movement of uh, making church comfortable. I feel like my generation of millennials saw that and were like, man, church is so comfortable that it's kind of just fluffy and it's not like, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not that raw, uh, if you will. And I feel like an authentic that they uh, swing the pendulum over to the other side where they're like, we don't really want church to be comfortable. We really want a cause. Um, and I think we do want to, we try to make it a cause. However, the downside or the shadow, I think, of millennial generation is as cause-oriented as we wanted the church to be, and we've tried to make church and all that to be, is the downside is we've also tried to make uh, church cool. Um, we've tried, like, how can we make church cool? How can we make us cool? And how can we make somehow Jesus cool? And so I think that was the rise of the, the Judas Smiths, the Rich Wilkerson's, the Carl Lentz, the uh, this, I mean, he, yeah. A pastor, <laughs> you look at what a pastor, a youth pastor today looks like compared to a youth pastor like in the 90s. The 90s youth pastor was like the puka shells and like a tight t-shirt from camp and just some cargo pants or shorts. And now a youth pastor looks like 
straight out of New York, like fashion. I mean, there's a reason why Preachers and Sneakers <laughs> has so much content to build off of. Is like uh, we we have like millennials have uh, the shadow of trying to. Which the irony is, I think Jesus. I mean, the gospel does permeate into what we would call causes. It's just the shadow is like you you can't make Jesus cool. Like there's only it's only you can only be so cool until like. Yeah. People don't like what he's saying, um, and they have to change or they have to transform. And um, all that to say is, yes, it was comfortable. We responded and made it cool. And I think uh, what I love about what Gen Z right now is, yeah, I think that they don't want to make Jesus cool. Um, they they really want to get back to the heart of the gospel, the, mm. the, the power of the gospel. Um, I and I don't want to make this everyone, but I am meeting more and more Gen Z, more Gen, more Gen Z leaders that I've met than millennial leaders. Um, that I have met that have this like revivalist type posture. Hmm. And they remind me of like a Leonard Ravenhill or a Billy Graham where they're like, yeah, just kind of how you said, we need a, we need a um, run from sin. We need to be like a, he, one of the young guys. I was just with one of the guys I, I respect so much. That's Gen Z. And he was just saying so often for the next generation, we're like, how can we give up just a little bit so we can have Jesus, but just give up a little bit? And he's like, I'm reading Abraham, and Abraham was willing to give up everything to have mm. Jesus. And we got to stop asking the question of how much can I give up and still have him instead of being, how much can I give up to have more of him? And I'm just like, dude, you're so old soul. But I think this is so refreshing. Mm. Um, and yeah, I just think focusing on Christ instead of focusing on cool is – uh, their big thing is it's, while the world is heating up and they're being bold with what they believe, uh, we need to stop trying to give a soft gospel or uh, a palpable gospel. And just we need to be just as bold, if not bolder, in what we believe. And so uh, I'm pretty pumped mm. about Gen Z. And I think for millennials, our role will be very crucial to uh, be disciple makers of the next generation and door openers for them. It's funny. I mean, from my vantage point, when Christians try to do cool uh it's kind of like Christian cool, which is always not really as cool yeah. as non-Christian cool. So it, it ends up being kind of like, eh, no, if I, yeah. if I want coolness, I'm just going to go, I'm not going to go to church. Like I, you know, yeah. Um, so I wonder, I, I guess that's kind of leading up to my question. Like where, where did that come from? Where, where did the, the kind of shift come from? Is it by just being unimpressed with Christian cool or, or did it not even really come from even looking at, and maybe there's no easy answer to this, but I mean, like, what's cultivating that hunger for depth and meaningfulness? Is it maybe the bankruptcy of social media? I mean, I'm just kind of throwing that out there. Like, there's that kind of hunger for community, but it's like, ah, this might this doesn't quite satisfy. I'm all I'm in the search for something more meaningful. And I'm just my world around me is not giving that to me. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think probably the the most hidden uh, subtle killer i think to the next generation and this is uh young people in the church or out of the church i actually don't think people in the church that are young that are christians uh struggle less with this than young people out of the church for whatever reason just something we don't address too much and i think gen z sees it and is hopefully going to address it better is i think comparison is the one of the most subtle killers to the next generation of christian leaders and christian uh Christ follows among young people in the sense that, yeah, when you talk about bankruptcy is uh, the irony is when you're young and you're running away from the Lord, uh, you care so much in that season of life before Christ about what other people think. Mm -hmm. um, and something happens where then you meet Jesus and you could care less what the world thinks for a season, for the beginning. 
and you just all you care about is God's approval and being hearing well done and just serving people. You have this like boldness that comes uh, in that season. I and I it's the kind of boldness that again Gen Z reminds me of right now. Uh, but something happens. I feel like whether it's months in or years in, where all of a sudden you go back to your old ways where. You may not care what the world thinks anymore, but I feel like a lot of uh, millennial leaders at least uh, maybe cared still about what Christians thought of them. Um, and so, mm-hmm. like, uh, we are kind of living in our own little castle uh, of, yeah, we're cool within this small bubble. Um, or we have approval or points. And I remember going to um, – I remember being in Israel once, actually, and uh, it was – I don't know why. I always run into cool people in Israel or, like, in the church cool. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, uh, I was at the Wailing Wall once, and Carl Lentz and Brian Houston were there. And it was like at the wall. Like It's not like this is one of the, there's a whole bunch of these. There's one place in the world, and we happen to be there at the same time. And there's hundreds of people around us, and no one knew who they were. Just the Christians did. Huh. Um, just uh, Our crew was like, oh, my God, look at who it is. Uh, I also, this is a different trip, and I remember uh, being at a restaurant, Andy Stanley comes into the small restaurant, what? but no one's looking and being like, it's Andy Stanley, except for us, the Christians that were there, like, blown away. Uh, <laughs> and I think, uh, yeah, I think that it's it's eye-opening even to me be like, you know, in our little kingdom or castle, this is a big deal, but to everybody else in the world, it's, it's really not. And so I, I yeah. think... Uh, I don't know. What I'm really attracted about is like cool can get you so far. There's what I'd associate probably with next gen leaders that I know that have this like purity of heart is this boldness that you you have. And I think they get to keep as long as they're like, hey, I'm going into a world that and I I will say, Preston, I do think that there maybe was a facade that you could make Jesus cooler maybe eight, ten years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And now I think there are certain I think with the reality of being a Christian can often get you canceled and how holding biblical values can often get you canceled. That, that facade is just gone. It's kind of like okay. either you stand here uh, with him or, or, or you don't. Um, but I, I mean, I'll tell a quick story of uh, these two guys that I was hanging out with this weekend, but they're here in Nashville is they did this big rave uh, where they didn't do a rave. They, they partnered with some kids here in Nashville that were doing raves for high school students. And, they were having these kids who were not believers um, were having hundreds of kids come to these raves, get drunk, get high, go to a rave and just go crazy and dance. Um, and they basically these two kids are like one of them here. His name's Luke Lefevre. He's like, I felt like God had called them to go and preach at this rave. And it's a crazy story where they, they got a venue called the uh, Rocket Town that's owned by Michael W. Smith here, met with them, said, hey, if we. If we could get you this venue for free to do your rave, uh, would you let us preach the gospel for 30 minutes at the end of your rave? Um, I'm just like, the boldness that these guys have. And the kids said, yeah. They said, we'll get it for free. And they said, all we ask also is that you put the money you would have put in the venue to get as marketing, to get as many people as possible. And they had a little over a thousand kids come to this thing. And I just thought to myself, I was even asking, I was like, how do you go into a rave? bold to preach the gospel. I mean, like it, they don't want to hear you. Uh, the last thing yeah. they wanted you to do is to stop the music and say, Hey guys, like just want to tell you real quick about Jesus. And, and the kid told me, he was talking about how, you know, none of the prophets were welcome, uh, but they did have a boldness that came from God and a word that came from God. And he also, one of the things he talked about was how Goliath mocked David until the minute, the second even that his head come up, came off. Uh, hmm. He was mocking him. 
And he said, so I might be at mocks, but I, I know I had to pray. Because he said he was nervous. He said he was crazy nervous. But yeah. God just kind of reminded him, uh, none, of my, none of my messengers have been welcome. But uh, there's, a, there's a moment, there's like a, a shift in the room where you can just, the, the king, whether it's King Nebuchadnezzar, whoever it is, just notices the Pharaoh, whatever, hey, God is with this person right yeah. now. And uh, I, I, hundreds of kids responded to the gospel at that event. Really? Uh, and I'm just thinking, man, I uh, so crazy is actually one of the two kids, unfortunately, months later, which actually happened about a month ago now, because uh, this story is from about a year ago. But the kid that did the, the, um, the raves, who was really moved by these two kids, uh, it was actually his influence in some way uh, that he was so influential among all these young guys that uh, when they were mocking the the preacher, the young guy, uh, he said, listen to him, listen to him, because he was wanting to listen to him. And the rest of the crowd kind of like, listen to this guy. I, I kind of would consider that guy like the person of peace, if you will, that God gave yeah. him. And um, unfortunately, that kid uh, was really moved by the gospel in that uh, and built a relationship with them more. But he actually passed away in Texas in a car accident mm-hmm. um, about a month ago. And they had a funeral, and they had about 1,500 people that showed up to this kid's funeral, 18 years old. Um, And their parents said, hey, we know that he would want you two to preach the gospel at his funeral. And so with 1,500, again, hundreds of kids responded to the gospel. And I'm just, like, again, blown away by the boldness of these guys. Uh, The last thing I'll say is, like, my hope for Gen Z is – you know, I heard David Platt once say one of the biggest problems for young Christian—I mean, sorry—for just Christian leaders is we all want to raise God's name, um, and we're trying to elevate His name, but we subtly kind of hope our name raises with His name as we're raising it. And my um, hope is that uh, just for all generations of Christian leaders, but especially for Gen Z, that they can maintain this idea of let's just raise His name, and it doesn't matter if our name is raised. In fact, the more biblical posture would be. Let's decrease our name in order to raise his name. So we don't care whose name raises yeah. with his name. It's just straight, hey, we just want his name to be known. And and we have no other option. I mean, for Gen Z, it's the most lost generation they've ever seen. The biggest difference, too, I would say with millennials and Gen Z is millennials grew up seeing most of the—I grew up seeing most of my friends leave church. All the guys I mostly went to high school with that were key leaders in youth ministry are not Christians or in church um, anymore. Uh, but Gen Z didn't grow up seeing them leave. They just grew up not ever having many Christian friends is what I'm finding. And so uh, they have no option but to be a missionary. Well, when you say they're lo- the most lost generation, what does that mean? Like they grow are growing up outside of the church or in the yeah. church without a yeah. faith commitment? or what, what is, How are they more lost than millennials or Gen Xers? I think that is that uh, at least a lot of millennials grew up in church and then left. Oh. Um, I think from what I'm seeing is, a lot of them, yeah, didn't even grow up in church, or okay. uh, I would assume even growing up in church and then just knowing, hey, this isn't my thing, this is my parents' thing. Just a more openness of mm-hmm. uh, this, this isn't mine. But uh, especially, yeah, I'm just meeting more and more Gen Z leaders. I was like, what it was like in high school uh, when you were a Christian, and most I'm seeing more and more than I did with millennial leaders is they didn't grow up with many Christian friends. So uh, I think that. I think that pressure and that reality check kind of pushes them to be missionaries uh, mm-hmm. sooner. Okay. I, so, um, it's, I mean, it's interesting you said that they, that 
let, let me make sure I understood you correctly that Gen Z, and, and again, I just I, this should go without saying, but we're speaking in generalities. Obviously, there's going to be exceptions yeah, and exactly. yeah. maybe even geographical differences too. But um, and that is, that is because some of these guys I'm talking about are more up north. Like if we're going to talk about Dallas, Atlanta, Nashville, okay, uh, maybe some Texas cities, that might be a little different. But a lot of the guys I know, especially up north, they're like growing up with mm-hmm. less Christian community, their own age. So my my question is it with Gen Z is my assumption and maybe it's the wrong assumption is that with the pervasiveness of social media that they are more prone to compare or want status platform name more views on their YouTube or TikTok whatever is that a wrong assumption I'm not going on any data I'm just kind of connecting dots in my yeah. head but is that not really a correct assumption that they don't necessarily want status as much as millennials or Gen Xers did. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think definitely there's the more access you have to online, the more access you have to, or more ammunition, I guess, the enemy has for for comparison um, and for any of that kind of stuff. Uh, I would say, and this is again where I'm similar to you. I don't have like all these stats on Gen Z when it comes to uh, social media. Is uh, I do think. I'm focused on high caliber young Christian leaders. So I, I couldn't even fully focus on like the general Christian and Gen Z. Um, but I'll say the difference I'm seeing is there are, there are more young people in Gen Z than I saw in millennials that I think maybe because the oversaturation of social media, also they get to see a generation that's maybe five, 10, 15 years ahead of them and seeing the effects of social media. Cause it still is a somewhat new experiment. I mean, yeah. uh, Millennials in my I would I think most millennials would have got social media around late in middle school um, and now we're seeing the effect of like and that would have been MySpace uh, at least for me and then it was Facebook and then it so we've even seen like a handful of social media platforms be the biggest thing and then die like MySpace I, I Facebook's not dead but I think it's yeah. pretty dead to to millennials and especially to Gen Z yeah. um, and then continue to adopt new platforms so seeing the, the negative impact or maybe even like the fruitless impact of man that used to be so important now it's not even something i check or care about anymore so there are i think they're getting to see a little bit of the impact of that um however i think the biggest thing among the young leaders that i'm working with that is the game changer that makes them care less about what other people in the world think or even other young christians think is just discipleship i mean i personally think uh, the biggest tip or trick you could ever, I could ever give someone on reaching the next generation truly is discipleship. Um, I go so far to say that I don't even think there's a next gen problem, really. I think that there's a discipleship problem in our world today. Uh, and it may look like, no, we have uh, the generations keep getting worse and worse. Um, I think that young people, young singles personally, are always and always will be and have always been associated with like doing dumb stuff. I just think for boomers, when they were young and single, they were immature. For Xers, when they were young and single, they were immature. Like, I don't think, uh, I think the only two things that have really changed is the lack of discipleship keeps getting worse and worse. And I do mm-hmm. think the culture is, uh, is changing too. And so when you don't have a generation getting discipled uh, and you keep getting less and less of each generation getting discipled because we're just dropping the ball on that every generation gets worse plus culture is shifting more and more away from the things of god away from the church Mm -hmm. then when we choose not to disciple the next generation i believe the world gladly volunteers to do that instead of us i was gonna say they're 
I, I often say people are being discipled by somebody, <laughs> whether mm-hmm. it's by the church or a Christian leader. That's another question. But like, I mean, this is I always bring this up in sexuality conversations with churches, you know, that remain silent. I'm like, well, your your congregation's being discipled daily, yeah. but in sexuality, gender conversations, uh, what role y- your voice has, that's another question, but don't pretend like discipleship isn't happening. might not be in the direction you want, you want it to go, but yeah. Um, I want to come back to actually the sexuality piece with the younger generation. I know that's a huge question, but, um, so with the social media thing, like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, my hope is that Gen Z will be the generation that sees the bankruptcy of, of, um, and I don't, how do, how do I, I'm, I use social media, I'm on social media and stuff, but yeah. just the enslavement to social media. Yeah. Um, and seeing that as kind of your primary form of friendship and community and, and, and identity and all these things. I'm hoping that Gen Z will kind of say, it's not working. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go a little bit. I'm going to kind of, start swinging back to rejecting kind of a, a life that's saturated technology or maybe, maybe more specifically social media. Do you see yeah. that happening? Um, or yeah. not, not yet? And, and or it's like, I do want to say just yes or no. Like I see the high forms both ways in the sense of, um, I would start with the bad and go to the good of like, I see more an acceleration of young people that are, Every generation, millennials had a high amount of this. And I think Gen Z has even higher of like believing they truly are going to and will be famous. Um, That is a (laughs) struggle for the next generation of thinking. Like, I wish I got to get the stats for this, but I know it's gone up by like a ton with millennials. And I know it's gone up a little bit more even with Gen Z that the idea it was uh, they did a study where they were like, uh, it used to be, I think think it was generally around two out of ten. Uh, of like extras or boomers thought they'd be famous. as well. Now it's like four or five out of millennials think they will be famous. So almost half of them. And then I think it was at six I around there generally. I just know it's yeah. incrementally got more. Um, and I will say that isn't crazy to think it is. It's, it's a little improbable, but in millennial generation and Gen Z generation, there's more access to, I think what we need to do is better define what fame is. Uh, it's more like, do you have a lot of people watching you? Cause because getting uh, a lot of people to follow you online and uh, through Instagram and especially through TikTok is actually quite sometimes easy. You could yeah. either do a viral video. Uh, sometimes, I mean, it's just being attractive. Um, and unfortunately, how much you'll show of uh, your body uh, can get you a lot of views and a lot of likes. Um, it, but I, And I am seeing more and more people do that where it's like, wow, there's so many social media influencers uh, that have over 50,000, 100,000 uh, followers and likes and all that, but they're very unknown in their actual real world, if you will. Like they might have 100,000 uh, followers, but uh, mm-hmm. do DoorDash as their full time job. Uh, mm-hmm. So they might, and I, and I even remember when I first started getting into this about six, seven years ago. I was like, this kid that was like really well known, posting videos all the time. A lot of people across the country online knew who he was. And then I, when I met him in person, he worked at Chick-fil-A. And I was like, that's not bad. I mean, that's what I actually expect of a 20-year-old or an yeah. 18-year-old. But um, I just wouldn't have thought that based on the way huh. you, you portray your life uh, to be. And so uh, there are more, again, that are pursuing. I want that because it looks really good, at least online, until you get maybe a little closer and realize it's not as big as it is. I also would assume that it's kind of 
probably can be uh, difficult to be so like I'm known, but I'm actually not that known or I'm known, yeah. but I'm actually not that successful. Uh, however, I also am seeing young people that are caring less and less about social media. Uh, and okay. uh, old soul is a phrase I use a lot for young Gen Z old leaders. Yeah, just like you, you got, dude. You guys are like old souls. Like I feel like I'm around as old people, and those are the ones that are more mature and they don't care. And and I almost would liken it to this person is like for millennials. I don't think they bought into the American dream like yeah. Xers and Boomers did, especially Boomers. Um, the 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 idea that they, I think that um, Boomers pursued provision, um, and they were also raised by and a little bit post uh, the Great Depression. So the idea of making money and putting food on the table and making a living, even a great living if possible, was something that they pursued. And I would say that while they pursued provision, uh, the millennial generation especially pursued passion and purpose over provision. And so I almost think of the book, uh, the movie uh, Dead Poet Society as yeah. a great example symbolically of what I think a generation did, where it was like the dad, Boomer, got him into the school and the kid wants to go do theater arts and he's at this incredible like prep school for mm-hmm. uh ivy league schools and his dad's like we have a quote from the movie when he finds out he's like he tells his son neil he said we me and your mother have sacrificed way too much and worked way too hard to get you into this school so that you can go and be a doctor um for you to go and throw it away throw your life away by going into theater arts but for this kid he doesn't see it as throwing away it's he sees it as pursuing his passion yeah. uh, maybe even his purpose and so, uh, I mean, 52% of young leaders in the millennial generation or young people, sorry, um, they found through Business Journal, uh, did a survey and found that 52% were willing to take a drastic pay cut in their job um, if they got to uh, do something that had uh, was uh, fulfilled their purpose and their mission mm-hmm. uh, in life and in their gifting. And so I, I think there was a shift away from seeing that experiment of pursuing provision getting the white picket fence, the house, the the car, maybe the boat and all that. Uh, but if you're familiar with Halftime uh, by Bob Buford, mm-hmm. uh, it's a big book for marketplace leaders. It's kind of this like half midlife crisis where you, people got that. And these are for like a lot of successful marketplace leaders. And then they realize, man, is, is this it? Like mm-hmm. I gave up so much. I actually, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think like you're saying that uh, you hope that Gen Z sees that the bankruptness in uh, social media and platform and being known and being famous. Um, I do think millennials definitely saw that in Xers and boomers from pursuing, mm-hmm. and especially for millennials, seeing their fathers yeah. uh, pursue jobs that they absolutely hated, didn't even enjoy yeah. at all. And you could just tell by when they came home from work is like all they wanted to do was veg out. They had no joy at that job. However, they provided an unbelievable life for their, their yeah. family. Yeah. So they kept doing it for many, many years. Like for 20 years, <laughs> our dad did this job. And for millennials, they can't even fathom doing yeah. a job they don't like for six months. Um, and so they shifted away from that. Again, and that I think is actually a good thing, but then there's shadows. Because I always say millennials mm-hmm. might be one of the most passion-driven, purpose-driven generations that are absolutely broke. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. have no money. And so <laughs> so we, we – uh, yeah, that's why, again, I think discipleship is key in that again too is it's not either or. It's both and. But yeah. when the enemy gets us to, to just critique one side, swing the pendulum the other – uh, we're we're gonna miss out some good stuff. It, it makes it makes sense us. that they would see going back to the famous thing like that makes sense because, given the fact that oftentimes the people they see as famous are you know YouTubers, TikTok, whatever, and oftentimes, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, like, well, you said it. I mean, you can 
get a huge platform and not really have much talent. I mean, we live in a world where Kim Kardashian is a, now a billionaire, and she even says like, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, do I, "What do I do?" Like, I just. Um, but I think that so I would say, you know, you have a kid that's like has their favorite YouTubers doing funny cat videos with a million million followers. Like, well, I can do that. Create a channel in five minutes, and yeah. you know, it's like, well, of course I'm gonna get a million followers like they did it like why wouldn't you know yeah um i am nervous grant um and even this came out i wouldn't say necessarily with the specific people at the gathering we were at but just the idea of being able to get such a massive influential platform at such a young age um i would say this of anybody really but because gen z well, not Gen Z, but because we live in a generation now where you can go from nobody to still a nobody, but with a massive platform or like, there's no, like, yeah, you didn't, in a sense, you, you didn't gain the life experience and wisdom of getting there. So I've, I've got a, like, um, my oldest daughter is a, a musician and we talk a lot about, you know, like, like the old days of how, how did, how did you make it in the band in the eighties? It's like, Man, the 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 steps you had to take to work your way up to playing in coffee shops on the streets and bars and this that da, 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 and maybe get an album you know way later on or whatever. Now it's like, gosh, you can. Oh crap! Oh, you there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah sorry so so that. no, that's fine. Um, so now you know now you can get famous if your YouTube video goes viral. You know, and it's like you can bypass some of the, and not, I don't, I sound so crotchety by saying, but like the hard work or good, but not, not just the hard work, but just the life experience and wisdom. And, and it's easy. Well, when you've had lots of ups and downs and ups and downs and denials and then success and down, you know, it's easy to be cultivate some level of maybe humility of like, man, I, I got beat up a lot, but I now have this platform, whatever, but to just yeah. go from nobody to all of a sudden super famous. I'm nervous about that with a 19 year old all of a sudden has a huge platform. And now they think that and they, they're influential, but it's like, that's, that makes me nervous. You know, um, yeah, people absolutely. are like, Hey, what do you think? Okay. What's your view on sexuality? Well, actually it is like, well, you don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, um, no, they don't. And, and we do, we, 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 we tend to think that just because somebody has a platform now we do this with celebrities, right? I mean, what does Robert De Niro think about politics? Like, does he have a degree in poli sci? Like when did he become an, you know, um, you know, anyway, um, are you, is that, is that, is that, is that right for me to be no, nervous or I do mean, you see that as a concern? You're spot on. You're spot on. I mean, so, uh, Preston, before three years ago, all I did was focus on leaders in Dallas. Cause that's, that was my heart was Dallas, Texas. And, uh, I, I used to joke and say, I want to be the, like, I, my title technically was George Bailey enthusiast. Um, and George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life is just my favorite movie. And I just love that guy and the, and the concept of that movie. Um, when you really think about it is, I think if, if you were a Christian, especially is like, this is a guy that for his whole life had to live for decades in a city that he couldn't wait to get out of, go move somewhere else. Cause he thought, the grass was greener in some other city and there was greater experience to be at another, some other city. And, but he never got to leave. And I kind of liken him to young people where they're like, man, I want to go move to LA or New York or Nashville or some other cool city. Um, and, and I don't think Dallas is not a not cool city. I could be in like Oklahoma or something. <laughs> um, but I, I, I didn't see, I saw a lot of people wanted to leave Dallas um, and leave that city. And basically 
they want to go change the world and be a part of something bigger than themselves, like George Bailey. Uh, but what I like about that story is he gets to see what the world looks like when if he didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And um, when without his the lack of his presence in that city, drastically changed the community. He was, uh, I mean, the the city was just darker. It was different. It was uh, in such a bad place. And I kind of thought to myself, man, just one person not existing made that kind of impact. And so there's a long way to say I was so dedicated to I want to start getting young Christians to commit to the city of Dallas for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Or at least unless God says otherwise, we're all in at the city. We're not waiting for him to give us the go to leave or do something else. We're just all in together, united in the city. Um, And so the only thing that made me shift away from just focusing on Dallas leaders was from speaking uh, and traveling and meeting all these other high caliber young Christian leaders from other uh, parts of the country that were uh, getting huge book deals, huge online platforms, speaking, author, whatever it may be, um, professional athletes. And I started realizing, man, these guys need community uh, mm-hmm. and they do need yeah. others pouring into them. Because uh, just like you say about Robert De Niro is uh, you can't assume just because they're a professional athlete uh, and they're successful in that uh, one arena. Right. That that means they're just a leader and mature in all these other arenas. Because yeah. uh, at the end of the day, they may have a million followers or a huge book deal or whatever, but they still have uh, they're still 19 years old and um, they're still yeah. 25 or whatever it may be. And so. Uh, I started doing retreats for young leaders. Uh, my whole my last seven years, I've been doing it. And uh, I've been doing, there was a group that let me sponsor, or not even sponsor, they sponsored 20, 25 young leaders that were high caliber young leaders to go to Israel for free. And they let me pick them. And so like, I did like six trips where I got to take all these kids, young people to Israel for free. And I got to know them deeply because of nine day trips each time. I did like tons of them. And that's where I met a lot of these young guys, too, because most people say yes to a free trip to Israel. And I I got to know all these unique, high caliber young leaders. And I just was like surprised by uh, some of them are like more mature than you realize. But I would say a lot of them still need development, still need discipleship as much as I would say I still need discipleship. But Mm -hmm. uh, I think people would be surprised how much. Yeah, they're wildly unprepared for one, the culture that lies ahead of us Mm -hmm. as Christians in the next 10, 15 years to the, the discipleship and biblical development that they need. Um, mm-hmm. So three years ago, I shifted and said, you know, I'm seeing so much fruit come out of these side projects of this Israel trip and some of these retreats I'm doing that I'm just doing because people are offering these free trips or, hey, you want to do a retreat for these guys? I have a great place. That three years ago, I'm like, I'm just going to go all in and try to help what I was doing in Dallas. I'm going to brought into America mm-hmm. starting to bring us all together. Like what if we could change our nation and impact our nation united? Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that we got to do was uh, this mentor day with Greg Laurie. Uh, are you familiar with him out yeah, of California? Yeah. Does these massive evangelistic crusades if, uh, for yeah. those listening that may not be and hundreds of thousands of people coming to stadiums um, over, over several days. And, um, we did a day where we came to his crusade, but the day before we met with him and um, I was actually consulting his uh, church at the time. This was about a couple years ago. And uh, I was consulting his staff under 40 and he was in the room and he came up to me. He's like, Hey, tomorrow we're going to meet with all these young leaders. And all my staff is telling me that you have all these connections and the guys that are coming are like just unbelievably influential young people. He's like, could you tell me about them? And so I tell him, yeah, this kid is huge on YouTube. Like I can almost guarantee you if you brought him to speak uh, to your youth, 
uh, I, I think more than half of the, the youth would know who this guy is, if not more. Hmm. Uh, he's just like in the same way that, uh, I mean, basically I said, I don't know if you know, but like Gen Z doesn't really watch TV anymore. They, they watch YouTube channels yeah. and subscribe to them. Like this is one of the most subscribed to channels. Yeah. Uh, I was like, this girl's 19. Uh, and I was like, he's a multimillionaire and he's 19 years old. Uh, and he has a huge <laughs> mansion in Newport beach. Um, and then I was like, this girl right here is 20, 20 years old, maybe 19. And she just signed a huge book deal with Zondervan. Um, and I was like, this guy has millions of followers here. This guy is like musician. And they're all like mostly 25, 26 or under. And he's like, wow. I said, collectively, this group probably has like 20, 25 million followers online, if not more. And it's only a group of like 20 people. And uh, he's like, that's crazy. Like, absolutely insane. And he said, also, I want to mention it's absolutely like terrifying. And I'm like, why? And he said, here's why. He said, think about this, Grant. He's like, when I was 19, like you're talking about this girl with a huge book deal or this guy with a mansion, when I was 19, I'd be lucky. He said, I'd be lucky if some of the youth pastors let me preach yeah. um, to the youth at that time. And he's, if they started letting me do that, my character, so my opportunities here, he's like, my character starting to catch up over the next season to where the opportunities are. Because God does tend to give you opportunities bigger than your character could handle, but your character starts to catch up. And then you can be trusted with a little bit more. And I'd get some more opportunities and more platform, if you will, and maybe even more some money. And then my character yeah. starts to catch up to that. And then I get some opportunity. And he's like, honestly, you're about my age. And you feel like your character is finally starting to catch up to the things God's doing through you. Um, but your generation, it, it sounds like they're making sometimes more money than I am at my age. Yeah. They're getting bigger book deals. And they are still just 19 years old. And you just can't microwave the kind of character and development and failure and just hum- humility checks that yeah. uh, that are going to need be needed at that time. And so he just said, and this is at the time James McDonald, who's one of was one of his best friends, is I think one of his best friends had just fallen out of ministry. And so he yeah. mentioned he's like, and James McDonald, he's like, how many guys have we seen fall out of ministry? And that's from the older generation, yeah. and they still didn't have the kind of accountability. It sounds like they they needed. Yeah. He's like, with your generation, we might just see one of the worst uh, falling out of generation in Christian leadership that we've ever seen because of the massive amount of platform influence finances that this yeah. group is getting it sometimes without the, the development of discipleship and character to sustain it. And so I, I, I think yeah. you're spot on. And that's a lot of why I kind of started shifting away from just let's unite and let's come together to uh, even joining Q and um, Gabe was like, I can only pour in so much. I'm barely Sometimes I'm the same age as you guys, and sometimes I'm just a few years ahead. Uh, but there's a group that's been around for 18 years that is all about equipping and preparing uh, the next generation of Christians mm-hmm. for what lies ahead, uh, plus Axiom and all the great uh, mentors that can c- come out of that. So we're just getting started, but that that was, the yeah. uh, I think, a God thing to bring that relationship by the time he did. That's good. No, that, that yeah, when I hear millions of followers, eight, 19 and book deals and stuff, I mean, I, yeah, I... Um, we need, we need more, we have access to unlimited knowledge, no doubt. Um, but we need wisdom and that, that you can't, I love your phrase. You can't, what'd you say? Microwave that Yeah. <laughs> you can't, yeah. you just, you, you, yeah, you, you need that life experience to cultivate genuine wisdom. And I remember, well, Fr- Francis Chan told me that he's like, I told myself I will never write a book until I'm 40 years old. And he's like, what do I do? I'm a 35 year old. I 
what do I have to say to people at 35, you know, with only 15 years of ministry experience? That, that was, and he did. Yeah. He grew up crazy love when he was 40 years old. Was 40. And um, yeah. even someone like an N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright wrote a couple scholarly books in his 30s and 40s, but he really didn't start writing like at his, well, he, the one time I talked to him, he waited till his kids were out of the house. But think about this. This is so awesome. He's like, I don't have time to write. Like I was teaching, doing this, and I wanted to be with my family and kids. And, you know, it was after they're out of the house when I was, when he was like in his late forties, early fifties, when he started to really write and he spent the last 20 years publishing, you know, 10 books a year or whatever. But, um, yeah, just, just that idea. And that, again, that sounds so, I don't, I'm not saying that's gospel truth or that's, you know, that there's no 25 year old that has wisdom, but I'm not saying that, but as a general pattern, I think at least having that caution, at least having that, like, man, I don't need to race. I need to, to. I need to focus on cultivating virtue and character and wisdom and humility and, and, and let my platform and and leadership flow out of that. Um, when God decides to bring it, um, you know, what if somebody who wants to write a book at 25, what if they waited till they're 40? What if like, why not? You know? And I, I'm saying I didn't do that. I wrote a book at 32, I think. So I'm not saying that that's, um, something everybody should do, but just that, I, just that knowledge that, man, that, that slow, that long obedience in the same direction, um, that, yeah. um, Eugene Peterson book, uh, I just, I, yeah, I, I, in the, in the discipleship process, I want to instill that in the next generation. What, what do you, do you have any thoughts? And I know we got, we got to wrap this up, but, um, I know there's lots of conversations about just changes in how we do youth group. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, there's some people who talk about even like a, you know, the, the youth group crisis that how we did youth group for the last kind of in the pre-internet age, um, is just really live in a different world now. And we need to do, uh, we need to disciple, um, not just create yeah, I mean, that's gonna avenues where always pe- be my answer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you have yeah, any thoughts I mean, on I, if you have the youth pastors listening and like, man, I, I want to disciple my kids. What would be some pieces of advice that you would give them? Yeah, I mean, this is an answer for the whole church, but it definitely would impact youth ministry is uh, I would say if the church can do one simple thing that would inevitably lead to several new things is uh, I would just say measure discipleship in your church. Uh, Simply doing that of measuring discipleship in your church uh, inevitably would lead to uh, so much because uh, I feel like it's not that we have the wrong scorecard. I just don't think we have as robust of a scorecard that we need in the church. Um, our scorecard, according to Jim Simbola, he kind of says in Fresh One, Fresh Fire, that uh, we mostly just count butts, budgets, and buildings. Um, and I have a mentor who said, what you count and what you celebrate, it creates your culture. Um, yeah. And I, I really thought about that. I was like, man, it really is true of different churches, I think, of even to, not even churches, but organizations or even parts of culture, uh, little pockets of culture. I'm like, what they count and what they celebrate, you'll get a good idea of what their culture is based mm-hmm. on the, what they're counting and measuring the success, the kind of person they're celebrating. And um, yeah, I just think in uh, in the church, we mostly celebrate speaking. That's the most mm-hmm. overglorified mm-hmm. gift in the church, in my opinion. Uh, we don't glorify the gift. Of, uh, we under glorify the gift of disciple making. Yeah. Uh, we over glorify the gift of speaking. And um, I just think uh, what we count in the church specifically is, again, butts, budgets, buildings. Um, and I I think that's good. I'm never trying to say let's stop counting giving and let's 
stop counting mm-hmm. um, attendance and let's stop counting uh, this whatever we're going to add to the building and the campaign or whatever it may be. However, uh, I just want us to start counting disciple making because uh, the sad part is so many churches actually have disciple making the phrase and the action in their mm-hmm. uh, mission statement. It's like we exist to glorify God through making disciples, blah, 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 in our city, but whatever. And and then you ask them, okay, it's in your mission statement. How many disciples did you make this year? And they'll be like, oh, well, you know, this many people came to church. Um, this many people are giving. This many people are in small groups, which is great. I'm glad we count those things. It's just not discipleship. And so um, – what, yeah, I just I think about that. I'm like, man, Chick Fil A really cares about making chicken sandwiches, and I can guarantee you they know how many chicken sandwiches they made last year. Like Nike makes shoes, and they know how many shoes they made last year. Tesla makes cars; they know how many cars they made. We make disciples, and we have zero idea how many hmm. disciples we make each year. And so, uh, again, I don't think we have a, a next gen problem. I think we have a discipleship problem. Um, but what that means for youth is. Um, if we started making account at measuring discipleship, it would force us to define discipleship. Yeah. It would force us to create a plan for discipleship. So we know if we are on, not on track. Um, mm-hmm. And it would start to kind of tell the people it's not enough to just show up. It's not even enough to give. Yeah. Uh, or it's not enough to even be in a small group uh, on a one-to-one level. We want to know, do you have a relationship with someone younger than you in the faith? Statistically, Barnum's found that only 17% of Christians do. Only 17% of Christians have a relationship where they have committed to pour into someone individually younger than themselves. And um, I would actually ironically think fixing the discipleship problem would fix a lot of the next gen being in church problem. Because although the next generation may not connect to institutions, uh, they do connect to individuals who represent institutions. Uh, And there's already been statistics to show that – the, one of the key factors of young people who stay in church post-college when they have to leave their home and they're no longer living under their family's faith is when they had someone who was mentoring yeah. or discipling them because they had a connection to the church that was bigger than just, am I going to show up? It's like someone was going to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, someone was who they sat with. Someone was there in small group or on mission with them. And mm-hmm. so uh, I, I, I too often think that churches kind of treat discipleship like a luxury instead of a necessity. Um, but I think if we added it, as it would actually lead to better giving and better attendance and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, you know, I wrote a whole book on this. Nobody's read it or even heard about it. It's called um, Go, uh, Bringing Discipleship to the Front Lines of Faith. It's based on a Barna study on discipleship, the state of discipleship in the church. I think it was 2015. Yeah, yeah. So Barna or... So Nav Navigators commissioned Barna to do the study. Then they commissioned me to write kind of a book that draws out the implications of the study. Um, and then it kind of turned into more of a my kind of vision for what discipleship looks like in, in the church to kind of categories and stuff. And yeah, anyway, yeah. it's um, I would fully I agree that we have, yeah, that's the whole premise of the book and the study is we have a growing, I mean, it's been growing, but it continues to grow a discipleship problem in the church. Um, and, and maybe it's because we do measure like, and this is a generality, but I mean, maybe we, it's because we think that if the church is growing numerically, that we're fulfilling our discipleship job. And it's like, maybe, I mean, sermons can contribute to discipleship. Um, even small groups can contribute and this and that, but like, is it actually happening? And how do you even measure that without being overly weird about, you know, quantifying it. But I mean, yeah, are people 
being more generous and being more, you know, um, uh, reaching out to the poor more. Are they, are they serving others? Are they preaching the gospel? Are they, you know, yeah. various way, or even like, I even have a whole chapter on like uh, multi-ethnicity as discipleship, you know, like that's a, obviously a massive blind spot in the church. It's like, if you're yeah. all white church in a diverse neighborhood is growing and doing this and doing that and being gender, all this stuff. But if it's still all white, not multi-ethnic, I think that's a problem. I think that that's a piece of the kingdom of God that you've kind of missed out on. But Grant, yeah. I've taken you over your time. Um, I know you've got stuff to do, but man, I um, thank you so much for what you do. And how old are you? Are you thir- 30? No. Yeah, I am. I am. Okay, I, that's I what I thought. 31. So you're, I'm 45, and so I, you're just in a sweet spot of having that wisdom and maturity, and yet young enough to where you truly do understand. I think you're so deep in the the younger generation. So um, I, I, I'm gonna, I have leaned on you. I'm gonna continue to <laughs> lean on you yeah, for helping yeah. me out because, uh, man, huge, huge need in the church, right? To pass on, yeah, this faith mantle to the next generation. So thank you. And bro, and I would encourage you, and I would be gladly help. Is I would say after this, like get one or two Gen Z leaders on and ask them. I mean, mm. that's the one thing I wish that uh, would. Ha- I used to say that when I was in my twenties, and every time I would speak on the next generation, especially at a church, most of them would be eighty percent of the people, if not ninety, were above forty. So they're there to learn about the next generation. Then yeah. a small percentage of the group, they would always sit together, were the actual young people. Interesting. And I always knew yeah. I'd be like, I'd be like that too. If I was young and I heard my pastor say, hey, we're getting this guy to teach us about the next generation so we can better reach them. And I've been in the church for a while. I've been helping, but you guys don't listen to me. Mm-hmm. But now you bring this other guy in to come talk about it. So they'd always sit. I, they're always kind of judgmental. And I get it. Again, they're like, who is this guy to talk on behalf of an entire generation? <laughs> but at the end of almost every time they would say, hey – we we totally agree with a lot of what you said. Uh, we've been saying almost everything that you've said. You just you just say it a little better than we do. And they invited you in to speak, or you're more well known than we are. And and I would tell people a lot is like you know, I cost a lot more money than these guys that are at your church every week that are saying apparently the same thing that I'm saying. And so I was like, you should always start with asking them, um, yeah. because I'm in there, and they're going to stay because I'm going to leave. Uh, yeah. But they're they're actually there. And so, um, yeah, the lucky, the good thing. I always joked. I was like, the 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 irony about the next generation is so often we ask people that are influential among the next generation instead of asking the next generation. The great thing about the next generation is unlike if we did a study on like whales and we were trying to find out. Hey, why are whales migrating away from the church? Or why are they migrating over here? They're not eating kale anymore. They're they're wanting this or whatever. Like we can't find out why we can make assumptions, but with with Gen Z or millennials, it's like you can just go ask them. They speak English. Like we can we can talk to them. And so anyway, I, all that to say is I think I can bring a unique perspective because of I I can see the difference between my generation and their generation. But I'd love to also. Uh, bring some some gen z guys on too and i i, I want to listen to them and see okay what where am i right and where am i wrong well let's connect learn? offline and maybe you can throw me some names i thought that's a great i mean i've got four living in my house but that's a i yeah you know that's a little different but um yeah i would love to I'd be, that's a great great idea absolutely man awesome all right well take care man thanks for being on the show see you present.